HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Cane Vineyard and Winery, a Napa Valley winery committed to respecting the soil and dedicated to the creation of three Cabernet blends. For more information, visit Cane5.com. I'm Linda Palaccio, host of A Taste of the Past. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Good afternoon and welcome. Happy New Year. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights with me, your host, Katie Kiefer. So today, I, amazingly enough, I have a um, guest in studio. His name is uh, Ed Friedman, and he is um, uh, one of the, co- or at least the chief uh, executive officer of Four Solutions LLC, Limited Liability Corporation, and we'll let him tell you what Four Solutions is, but it's really, I mean, it sort of addresses a much bigger and broader uh, industry that I think is is going to become increasingly important. Anyway, here's his bio. Ed Friedman is a 28-year veteran of the financial industry. Yeah, one of those guys. (laughs) He spent 22 years with Morgan Stanley, and he was part of the founding management team of Hightower Advisors, which even I have heard of, by the way. Wow. Um, One of the fastest-growing wealth management firms and financial services before he joined Four Solutions. Our other guest who will be on the line uh, is Dr. Nicholas Smith-Sebasto, who has over 20 years of experience working as a professor and researcher in sustainability initiatives at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, at Montclair State University, and at Kane University. Is it Keene or Kane? I'm not sure. Um, he has spent over 10 years researching and developing the system for four, which is food organics recovery, um, short for food organics recovery. And this is a... Um, uh, a new version of composting that I hope will change the world. So why don't you guys jump right in and tell us what is uh, Four Solutions? Well, thank you, Katie. Nick's on the line as well? Hope yes, so. I'm here. Hey, Hi, Nick. Nick. Good afternoon. So so certainly, Katie, thank you, and, and to Jack oh, for having welcome. us on. Um, I'm going to let Nick kind of take that because Four Solutions and our system that we, uh, we designed or he designed is really kind of his brainchild, and we'll give a little cool. bit of the back history. Great. Go ahead, Nick. Tell us what it is. Well, it's a it's a way to um, mimic nature, if you will. The best example that I, I think I can give people is it's kind of like the microwave oven. Mm-hmm. We didn't we didn't invent the electromagnetic spectrum. We just figured out a way how to harness a tiny little portion of it to our benefit, so that we can cook our food a little more quickly than we used to be able to do so. Right. Four 
the Four Solutions composting technology kind of does the same thing insofar as we figured out a way to do what nature has been doing for billions of years, the way nature recycles organic matter, and figured out how to optimize it so that we could recycle organic matter more quickly than what nature typically does. Uh That's basically the whole idea behind it. Okay. So give us a, so compare it to, uh, you know, normal. Okay. So, so let me, let me, let me start with this. There are quite a few competitors. I looked, uh, I looked it up. Okay. Industrial composting is not a new concept, but what you're talking about in terms of the accelerated method that you have um, evolved is quite different. So um, for example, there's a company called ECS, which processes 50 tons at a time or up to 50 tons at a time in their containerized unit. What, What's different about yours, and and why does yours work differently? Like, what is your technology that's so different? Sure. Well, you know, and when it comes to composting, it it, it was for a long time, I think, encumbered by sort of a, a uniquely American phenomenon. Insofar as that, we tend tend to think that bigger is better. No matter what we do, bigger is better. Bigger house, bigger car, bigger everything, and that not necessarily true when it comes to something like like composting. So, for example, the, the big, gigantic windrows systems that we have unfortunately seen fail repeatedly, uh, most recently very close to, to where we live in the eastern part of the United States. Um, if you if you think about, you know, there's a, there's a saying that uh, an aboriginal people in the southeast part of the world uh, like to espouse, and they say that if you take nature as your teacher, you'll never be wrong. Mm-hmm. So what we try to do with our technology is take nature as our teacher, and I thought about how do people digest food? Well, the first thing we do is we chew it, and then we swallow it, and then it goes down into our stomach, and we digest it, and uh, we, we do it that way. And, and we're so remarkably efficient that just a, about a month or so ago, on a particular Thursday, a bunch of us sat down and gorged ourselves to the point of almost being in the coma, <laughs> and then we went and sat in front of the football game and pretended to be awake watching it. And then the very <laughs> next morning, we were hungry for breakfast again. So right. our, our, our system had digested that enormous meal essentially overnight. Right, and and so it proved to me that it could be done, and so what we did was we tried to replicate to the extent that we could the human body. Um, so, for example, we don't use gigantic, large amounts, you know, hundreds of tons at a time. We use more manageable amounts, anywhere from say twenty five hundred pounds a week to maybe uh, forty thousand pounds a week, which. Uh-huh. By comparison, is quite small. We use a rotary drum technology, and and you're right. There's nothing inherently new about that. There are there are other rotary drum technologies out there, but again, we sort of refined it and sophisticated it by thinking about the internal aeration system and the way that the drum turns, the amount of times it turns, whether or not there are baffles inside, etc. Um, so we start by shredding the discarded, uneaten food down to about the size of a sugar cube, mm-hmm. bigger bigger than what we chew our food to be. Then we convey it from sort of our mouth, if you will, into the digestion cavity through a fully enclosed uh, screw auger, which takes it from one part of the system to the next. And then, quite frankly, we just get out of the way and let nature do what it does. But, <laughs> yeah, again, but you're not we, injecting we acid. It, so we make sure that the microbes that are going to digest the food have the perfect amount of air that they need. We make sure they have the perfect moisture content that, that they need. We make sure that the internal environment is just absolutely perfect for these microbes to do what they do. Mm-hmm. And, and how are the microbes introduced? We, we screen it automatically. 
Right. Oh, you screen it. Okay. So go back for a second because you haven't told me what the microbes are. Like when in our gut, we have flora and fauna, and we also have a lot of acids. So what are the microbes that you're using to digest a very broad range of products? And go ahead and tell us what some of those products could include. Like, can you guys do baby diapers like the hot rot? So I'll go back to the first part of your question, and this is where people tend to get a little squeamish. Not me. We don't use we don't use any bacteria, and we don't inoculate our food scraps with anything. No enzyme, no bacteria. We don't have to because, and again, this is where people get squeamish. All the bacteria that we need to digest the food are already in it, and when we eat the food, we eat those bacteria, and they do the same thing inside of us that they do inside of our system. It's a very symbiotic relationship. Okay. So our, our digestion vessel just mimics the human stomach. Cool. Uh, so what we can digest, we can digest anything that people can digest. So meats, uh, grains, fruits, vegetables, dairy. The other things that we can put in there are things that we don't eat, things like bones and shells. But that doesn't mean that they can't be broken down. They can be. They just take a little bit longer. Right. Um, and so they go through our system as well. Our system is capable of processing soiled diapers, although that we, we chose not to focus on that deliberately. And the reason for that is there are already systems out there that can handle composting, compostable soiled diapers. The issue is once you have what we're calling soil, let's face it, it's feces and urine, you've opened proverbial Pandora's box. Indeed so you have. far as the, the type of detrimental bacteria that we would expect to find. Like E. coli. The advantage with... Right? Like E. coli? Right, exactly. I'm yeah. sorry. And I'm on a cell phone, so I think there's probably a little bit of a delay. I'm sorry if I'm, if I'm not hearing you when you first speak. I'll try and go more slowly. Um, and the other bigger issue is food was sort of that thing that nobody was paying any attention to. It was just sitting out there. There are roughly 36 million tons that were generated in, in 2011, and it's tens of millions of tons every year. The overwhelming majority of it was going to a landfill. The next largest majority was going to an incinerator, both of which have very, very serious environmental repercussions. And we felt that it was really critical to provide a technology that could at last allow us to recover virtually all of the discarded, uneaten food that's generated in this country and recover every bit of it to turn it into that wonderfully rich, nutrient-dense soil amendment that we call compost. Yeah, I want some right now. Um, <laughs> now, let's let's uh, break away from you for one second and get Ed, give Ed a chance here to weigh in. So you came into Four Solutions a couple of years ago after Nick had done all this research because you don't have an engineering or environmental background, correct? Um, not only is that correct, but uh, I failed biology in middle school. <laughs> But you do know how to say microbiological. I can process. now say micro <laughs> microbial activity, oh, and yeah, more importantly, go. know what it means. Yeah. <laughs> so what what your role is is the, as the chief executive officer? What does that mean? Like how you're you're developing a business plan? You're the one who's who's organizing a sales force to sell this into the many 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 different applications that you list on your website. Which you might as well go ahead and give us a little <laughs> a little uh, tour of of just how many places could use this. So sure. So let's take a step back. I mean you. Speak into the Nick. microphone, please. Okay. <laughs> but we'll take a step back. You would ask Nick, you know, kind of what Four Solutions was about and, and the start of it. Uh, it's kind of an interesting story. Nick and I go way back. Yeah. Uh, we met 35 years ago on the track team in college. Adorable. And as I tell the story many times, Nick went on to get his Ph.D. in, uh, 
in environmental sciences and went on to save the world. I went to Wall Street to destroy the world. Indeed. And, and we have succeeded. now since come back together. <laughs> um, and Nick had designed this system, which was absolutely fabulous. First time I saw it, it was uh, kind of mind-blowing and, and really game-changing. And said, wow, if we took this system and could really broaden it out and bring it to those areas that were generating tremendous amounts of discarded food and uneaten food, the impact would be tremendous. Mm-hmm. Um, so we formed the company. Uh, we applied, or actually Nick had applied a couple of years prior for the patents, which I'm very happy to say we got in November. Awesome. Which was fabulous. We also have patents pending around the world in 23 countries and regions. Um, and we've started now to focus on those generators that generate concentrated amounts of uneaten food inside of closed systems. So that's a college, a university, mm-hmm. corporate campus. Um, food bank out in San Diego is purchasing one of our Fantastic. systems. Prison systems, I would imagine. Prison systems, captive labor, so it's yeah. easy to operate the system. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, I just read an article about uh, the slave labor we have going on in the prison system. It's an interesting. That's another discussion. I was going to say, that's a different radio show. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Um, But yeah, and hospitals, hotels. I mean, you know, the applications were really impressive. Um, But I guess what I was most curious about was um, sort of, uh, you know, having municipalities or townships uh, adopt this technology. Because, I mean, I am somebody who does not have cartage in the house I was describing to you earlier in, in Rhode Island. So I take my stuff to the dump. And, um, you know, it's there's household refuse into which one puts anything one wants, essentially. Um, and then there's recycling. And, of course, you know, you do your best to keep the, the way separate. But, um, you know, certainly I cheat occasionally, and I know other people do, right. too. Um, and so this kind of thing just makes so much sense to me that all that household refuse would go right into one of these digesters. Um, but how much... Does the state or municipality have, or federal government have, how much interest do they have in this? How much support would you get, and how do you sell it into a town that already has an existing system? Well, that's a great question, and I think that's kind of the future, and that's one of the Mm -hmm. things that we love about the company, because what we're seeing across the country, and and I would even argue globally, Mm -hmm. is that you've got cities, states, municipalities starting to legislate the banning of food scraps in the rest of the solid waste stream. Right. We've seen it happen recently in Massachusetts, Connecticut, Rhode Island. We remember a year or so ago with the old mayor in New York, uh, Mayor Bloomberg, when he started to refer to food scrap recycling as the last frontier in recycling. Yes, he started a composting program, actually. So we've got a lot of that type of um, uh, wind at our back, uh, so to speak. The challenge, though, becomes um, twofold. It's, number one, enforcing the legislation. Mm -hmm. Uh, and number two, it is creating solutions to handle um, that amount of, of food scraps for recycling. I read written a blog a while back about municipalities getting started. And when you think back to the early days of recycling in general, right. it took a while for adoption rates to start to really move up. Right. Um, well, when you think about food scraps recycling, it's even a greater challenge because yeah. – If you leave it in your home, it can start to smell if you don't manage it the right way. So one of the suggestions that I made in the blog was that municipalities that really wanted to start to get into food scrap recycling for the residents in the town, start where you can control the collection. And that would be most logically the school systems. Right. All of the um, pre-consumer food that's prepped in the kitchen and then teaching the kids in school to kind of plate scrape and separate out their, their waste. 
Um, once you get that going and you start to create a successful recycling program around the school system, number one, it has great educational benefits. But number two, when you do want to start real curbside recycling programs where you start to put the food out at the curb and it becomes part of this composting program, you've got the kids who've been doing it in school for a long time yeah. saying, hey, mommy, daddy, why aren't we doing this at home? And then you kind of get that groundswell, that wave start to really take off. Well, I was thinking about, like, when Bloomberg started this program. By the way, I tried really hard to get somebody from the program to come on the show. Um, unfortunately, they somehow didn't recognize that a radio show actually has a beginning time and an end time, you know. And it's like, oh, well, I'm sorry. Anyway, um, so I never ended up talking to them about it. But, I, you know, I would like to see, I, because I see a place like New York as kind of really ground zero, where you have a population, or at least some of the population, who really is interested. Um, and then... But then I think to myself, you know, if you had a like a 30-story building and you put one of these units right. down in the basement of that building, what could be easier that, you know, I mean, there's it's so easy to comply. But then it's a question of how do you get a building management company to, you know, be willing to go this extra mile yep. and spend the money? Or would it be possible to get, like, state legislation that helps support it? I guess that's why, I, I, you know, you, you that's where you come in, right? That's so what your job absolutely. is. And you actually touched on an idea that I've put out there. Uh, a while back, and that was the concept of having these big apartment buildings, these complexes, where you would situate one of our systems, let's say in the basement, yeah, collect all of the uneaten and discarded food from the building, yeah, bring it down the elevator to where the system is, create the compost, and then take that compost back up the same elevator to the roof and create roof gardens, yeah, uh, green roof technology, and then start to grow produce that then again feeds the building. It's it's a wonderful closed cycle. I love that. We're starting to see some states, for example, Illinois, um, each year around this time has instituted a grant program called the F-Scrap program, specifically designed to encourage organizations to start to put in composting systems. Right. Um, and they actually have allocated a fair amount of money uh, for it. We'd love to see that start to spread, you know, with greater wildfire, if you will, throughout the country. Absolutely. And the other place I was thinking, of course, would be, um, and just you telling me about rooftop gardening made me think of a company that I've also had on this show called Bright Farm. And they're a big urban ag company, and they grow and they build their uh, their um, their uh, urban gardens on top of grocery stores. And they sell their produce into the grocery stores that they build. So they would be like a perfect partner for you guys. Just saying. I'll hook you up. Okay, fair <laughs> enough. Anyway, give us an idea before we go back to um, to Nick, because <clears throat> he's probably getting bored out there. Um, well, I hope not, though. Um, <clears throat> give us an idea of what it costs to run one of these things. What does it cost to buy one? And what's your return on investment? Sure. So one of the things, obviously, that we did when we started the company was an understanding around the fact that whoever is going to buy it, right, because the same folks who would love to have one are not necessarily the same folks that write the check. Yeah. So we had to create what we referred to as an ROI and an ROE report. Right. ROI is pretty self-explanatory. What's the return on investment? Mm -hmm. The ROE is a little bit different, and it's actually a, a phrase that we coined, and that stands for return on environment. Yeah. And Much that, harder to quantify that. Well, it, what we've done is utilizing the EPA warm model, and I'll have Nick touch on that in a yes. little bit more uh, as we go on. But we've taken that EPA warm model and taken a look at a particular institution that said, what are you doing with your uneaten food now? Are you sending it to a landfill, an incinerator? Mm -hmm. How far are you trucking it? And then with all of that, comparing it to doing on-site composting, 
we've actually been able to calculate using the EPA war model their reduction in their carbon footprint. And then what we do is we convert that to what the equal number of cars, let's say, that would be taken off of the road for a given day based upon what they're doing. So that's something people could relate to. Right, right. That's The report that we created, that part of it, um, as we say, tugs on the heartstrings, but we know we need to tug on the purse strings as well. So the ROI report will take a look at the cost of the system, either as a direct purchase or a leasing arrangement that we have, and compare that to your current disposal costs, as well as the, the money that you're spending on fertilizers and soil amendments and the like. So depending upon what part of the country that a particular purchaser may be looking at will determine the return on investment, the percentage, the break-even point. Mm -hmm. There are parts in the country where hauling and tipping fees to remove this, even though you, somebody like yourself, has to take it to the dump, um, could be as low as $38 a ton. Mm -hmm. Or if you look in New Jersey, the state that we're from, there are parts that are upwards of $140 a And tipping fees, you mean like when they tip a dumpster? Yeah, when they bring it to a landfill. <clears throat> right. So they've got to pay the hauler to take it there, and then they've yeah. got to pay the landfill to actually tip it. That's right. Uh, there. So we've seen ROIs that have been as short as three years, uh -huh. break-even point. We've cool. seen them longer, closer to six, seven years. The beauty of our system is it's made entirely of stainless steel. Mm -hmm. So you could pour, as Nick says very often, hydrochloric acid inside the drum, leave it there for 20 years, come back, and it's done no damage to the drum. That's the beauty of stainless steel. I had no idea. So with the exception of the motors on the system that have to be replaced every 10 years, give or take, um, there's virtually little maintenance that needs to be done. So the ROI on a long-term basis, because this system can operate virtually forever, is tremendous. It's off the chart. Fantastic. So we'll take a short break right now for a sponsor drop. Uh, and we'll be right back with Ed Friedman and uh, Nick Smith-Sebasto. Talk more about Four Solutions, an industrial composting model. <clears throat> Born from discord and harmonies, raised by the rays of the fallen sun. Cruel that rage of our true cupid, except the killer of the mighty python. So a typical Today's break song is Daphne and Apollo by Odetta Hartman. You're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.org. This is Chris Howell from Cane Vineyard and Winery, calling in from Spring Mountain above the Napa Valley. Thank you for listening to this show. In our industrial world of highly processed food and wine, we support the values of Heritage Radio Network. All of us at Cane encourage you to seek out individuality and beauty in everything you eat and drink. To learn more about us, go to Cane5.com. <laughs> You're listening to What Doesn't Kill You on that. Am I starting now? Okay. <laughs> Sorry about that. You're listening to uh, Heritage Radio Network. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer. I'm talking today with uh, the two guys behind Four Solutions, LLC. You can look it up on the internet. Four stands for Food Organics Recovery. Um, this is a... a 
you know, an old technology, composting, uh, but in a new format. And um, so we're, <clears throat> we've been talking about the applications for this because it digests. I don't know if we've even mentioned the fact that one sort of go round of, you know, your composter only takes five days. In other words, from scrap to compost takes five days, which is having been composting my entire life in a more conventional sense. Um, I can tell you that it's really more like a couple of years before you really see a return on your investment of food scraps in a conventional methods. Um, so you talk about um, the various uh, applications, which include any kind of closed system, such as a sports arena, a hospital, a hotel, uh, a college dining room, um, all of those places where a lot of food scraps are generated and they generally get trucked to landfill. But um, on your blog, or rather on your website, you, you, there's a long statement there, which I read with great interest, as you can see. And I'm going to read a couple of quotes from it, and then we're going to address some of the infrastructural problems that face a company like yours. And uh, you can both weigh in on how you feel those uh, infrastructural problems should be addressed. So here's a quote. Um, Uneaten food must be recovered locally. So in other words, don't truck it millions of miles to a landfill. This will create jobs. It must then be composted locally. This will create jobs. The compost must be used locally to restore or sustain the vitality of soil so that eco-regional Appropriate food producing plants may be grown locally, such as on your roof, especially in areas not considered commonly uh, commonly considered as potential gardens. And this addresses, <clears throat> excuse me, the resiliency issue that is becoming increasingly important to those interested in sustainability. So you're suggesting here that composting in general, in a more creative way, such as four solutions, will enable more jobs and spur local agriculture that doesn't currently exist. So how do you describe? How do you imagine these ancillary benefits will occur? How do you see? Um, you know, creating an entire job market around the business of composting since there doesn't, there doesn't exist one at present. And this is not the easiest sell in the world. I got to say, <laughs> Nick, I'm going to give that one to yeah. you. Yeah. <laughs> Dave, that's, a, that's a, that's a great question. But before I answer that, I just want to go back for just a brief sure. moment to touch on something that you asked Ed and that Ed answered. And it, it just shows you <clears throat> the magnitude to which four solutions really is trying to literally change the world and change our paradigm about a couple different things. Uh So to your point, not too long ago, less than a century ago, there were places in this country, like in New York City, where if you were at a school or a hospital or a a clustering of houses, to Ed's point about taking all the food scraps that are generated down to the basement compost and then take the compost up to the roof and grow food, what they did was they took it to their incinerator. They had their little local on-site incinerator that was horribly, horribly inefficient, didn't burn nearly hot enough to do what it needed to do, and the result was this enormous amount of localized air pollution from the soot that was just being pumped out of these these, uh, pipe stacks that sometimes were only 50, 60 feet tall. That, again, basically barely a generation ago. And I think there's a misperception amongst a lot of folks that they just perceive that the way things are is the way things always were. And what they really need to understand is that the modern concept of sort of municipal solid waste management isn't is barely a generation old. It's really a post-World War II phenomenon. So, you know, we've tried something for 70 or so years, and now we need to progress and think of a, of a new way to do things, and we need to stop thinking of discarded, uneaten food as waste, because if we think of it as waste, we're going to treat it like waste, because yes. that's what we do. But one thing that we know from the field of ecology is there is no such thing as waste on this planet. 
it's just something that doesn't exist. The only place it exists is as a, uh, the word in the human vocabulary. So to your question, the, the quote that you read is based largely on an analysis that was performed by the, local, the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, and it looked at composting in the state of Maryland uh-huh. and concluded that composting creates more jobs than landfilling and incinerating combined, mm-hmm. and that small-scale, decentralized composting creates more jobs than medium-scale or large-scale composting. So our vision is one where any all food, discarded, uneaten food would be recovered locally, it would be composted locally, that compost would be used to restore the vitality of soils so that food could be distributed locally, and at every step of the way, you need people to do this. So take New York City, for example. It's believed that there are roughly 30,000 vacant lots in New York City, amounting to about 7,300 acres of land. Cool. It's, it's also believed that it takes about one acre of land to produce enough food to feed a typical American for one year. And a typical American diet you know, is roughly 2,000 calories. So conceivably, 7,300 people could be fed if we were growing food on the 7,300 acres of roughly abandoned vacant lots in New York City. And so when we, and that's just one city. Now imagine, imagine spreading that out all over cities all over the country and all over the world. Now some cities are already working to do this. Yes. I acknowledge that, but they're an extreme minority. So, you know, there was a report on the internet just a, a week or so ago alleging that the next world war, if there is one, and let's hope there's not, but the next world war is not going to be over land, like some people had previously suggested. It's not going to be over water, as other scholars have suggested. They believe it, is, in fact, is going to be over food. Hmm. And so in my mind, how, how in the world can we run the risk, roll the dice, gamble, whatever you want to call it, on a potential third world war over something that's so easily achievable? And, you know, so, again, it's, it's getting out of the mindset of bigger is better. It's getting out of the mindset of this is waste, let's just make it go away. We don't care where away happens to be, just as long as it's away. And instead, let's think of this as a replenishable natural resource that can restore the vitality of probably the most precious natural resource that there is on Earth, and that's soil, so that we can grow food locally so that it's no longer cheaper to go buy a bag of Doritos than it is to buy a, or a head of organic broccoli or something like that. Right. I can see Ed is, like, itching to say well, no, something no. here. Go I mean, for it, buddy. Nick's comment about the next world war, I, I think it turns a, a, a bit of a turn on the phrase from the 60s, make love, not war. Yeah. We're, we're really pushing for make compost, not war. <laughs> Uh, I have to disagree with you. I think that uh, water will absolutely be uh, the next frontier because global warming is drying up our uh, our water supplies and agriculture is yeah, going see, to have to change radically no matter what we do. But see, there's the beauty of it all. This, this intertangled web, there's a connection. Farmers who use compost have discovered that they can reduce their irrigation requirements by that almost 50%. Yeah, yeah, that is very true. And also different types of, uh, you know, no-till, 
you know, farming, et cetera. There's a lot of different ways of retaining soil, and that includes, by the way, uh, grazing cattle, according to many scientists, but um, right. not all of them. Anyway, I want to go on because, I mean, I, you know, without I, I, I'm going to play the devil's advocate here, Nick, only because, um, you know, obviously I'm a big supporter of your idea. I think it's great. I, I think it's wonderful you guys have started this company, and I wish you the most success. But, for example, you say something about the food being distributed distributed locally to schools, college, universities, hospitals, et cetera, et cetera. And, and I have to tell you, I've been sitting in this chair for six years. And the biggest issue that comes up over and over again as I talk to anyone involved in food and social justice, in agriculture, no matter what it is, is there is no regional distribution network at present. And there is no venture capital going into that sector. And this is where I find all of these ideas like re-regionalizing the food supply, uh, you know, doing a composting system such as you suggest where it's distributed locally. I just don't see uh, that happening. In other words, that's sort of like you're putting the cart before the horse. Until that distribution network exists, this product, along with any other prototypes that are of similar, you know, uh, similar design or, or intention, uh, is going to have a very hard time getting a foothold. And I just wondered if you guys had really thought about um, how to bring that distribution system uh, into play along with growing out your business. Like, I don't see them as divorced from one another. I see them as, as intertwined in a way that is, uh, you know, really your success uh, depends upon it, in my opinion. So how do you respond well, to that? Why, that's why programs such Mr. as Pine yours are so guy. important, because <laughs> we, need to, we need to make people aware, first off, that this technology exists. Because I'll tell you, Ed and I, we, we probably do about a dozen different conferences a year where we go there as an exhibitor, and uh-huh. the, overwhel- the overwhelming majority of people who come to our exhibit consistently say the same thing. I didn't even know this technology existed. Right. So we, we need to get the word out to that. And, you know, then I'll be brief so that Ed can chime in. But it, to me, I, I sort of build myself around a couple different concepts. One, obstacles are what you see when you lose sight of your goals. So if our goal is an equitable, fair, and just society, then we have to make it happen. I love and you. The, 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 other, the, the other one, the other one I, I think about is, uh, and I don't know whether this is legitimate or not, whether it was Hollywood's artistic creativity, but I think it's a magnificent line. There's a scene in the movie Patton where Patton is standing on a hillside overlooking a column of tanks and trucks and such driving down the road, and he has some observers there, and he turns to them and says, "Gentlemen, look at that. Compared to war, all other forms of human endeavor fade in significance." And I, I find that statement utterly profound because I would love to be able to say, you know, gentlemen, gentle ladies, look at that. Compared to reconciliation, resilience, and sustainability, all other forms of human endeavor fade in significance. And it can happen. We just have to choose that that's what we want. Yes. I, you know, I agree. I, I'd love to see us choose. Uh, that, you know, what we want. And I'd love to see us choose certainly um, a practical solutions such as you and Ed uh, are working so hard to develop uh, in the country. And I, you know, I certainly wish you the most of success. But I want to just move on real quick because there's, there's more to this. Okay, so if an institution elects to uh, initiate this composting system for solutions, food organics recovery, what are the costs and infrastructural needs associated with the collection and the separation of the garbage or the food waste? And how... You know, again, it goes back to this distribution issue. Like where, like when you, if say I'm a college, and I decide I want to buy one of your composters, like what is it going to cost me to figure out how to get, you know, all of that those food scraps into one lo- centralized location? I'm thinking of like, for instance, where my daughter goes, UMass, right. twenty-two thousand kids. They serve forty-five thousand meals a day. 
Okay, so how, you know, without increasing their budget hugely, um, how are they going to address uh, moving that food waste around and separating it? What's your vision there? So, so I think we have a live example yeah. of it. So there's a university in New Jersey Excellent. that has one of our systems. It's what we call our Model 1000. It processes a half a ton of food scraps a day. Excellent. Every day from all of the various kitchens on campus, both in the pre-consumer and from the post-consumer, and we'll talk about how they do that. Okay. They collect it, put it in five or ten-gallon buckets. They bring it over once a day, or they bring it over, I guess, during the day uh-huh. to the system that they have on campus. And then once a day, um, they process that through the Four Solution system. Again, to your point before, it takes five days. At the end of five days, they're offloading the compost. They had associated with the school a six-acre farm. So almost all of that compost went directly onto the farm. They would just go dump it, till it into the soil. Then that farm was growing the produce that was served in the on-campus farm-to-table restaurant as well as the cafeterias. So there's a a perfect situation or example of a closed system where they were taking all of the uneaten food, processing it, taking the compost, bringing it to a farm that was on campus, and then taking that produce and serving it to the students and to the restaurant that mm-hmm. was on campus. And what did that did it add anything significant to their budget? I mean, that's what I'm trying to get no, at because here. Is like, the, what did it cost them to initiate this besides the investment of the machine? Aside from the investment of the machine, which was mm-hmm. offset by their annual cost to dispose of, I of see. the right, unaten right. food, um, the system was run by um, folks that were already on staff as well as student volunteers. It was a great educational opportunity for the students. Right. Yeah, I see this going gangbusters it in college. It was huge. i got to hook you up um, with the guy at UMass because he would love this. Well, we'd love that. <laughs> we'd absolutely love that. But if you think about it, you have your kitchen workers and your maintenance folks that have to deal with getting rid of the garbage or, yeah. uh, without offending Nick, the waste, yeah. uh, the uneaten food anyway. So to bring it to a centralized location, the beauty of our system also is this system at this college in New Jersey was located about 30 or 40 yards behind the largest dorm. And it was right behind the student center, which had a big cafeteria, and it was also right next to a beach volleyball court. The point I'm making there is that there's virtually no odor associated with it. So you can locate this centrally on a campus without having to worry about offending people with odor or attracting rats or insects or, or any of that type, or noise. Uh-huh. Um, so it's a, a beautifully environmentally friendly to the environment that we're putting it in. It's very cool looking. Um, thank you. <laughs> well, I won't, Nick. Good job, Nick. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's, again, it doesn't add much to that cost at all because I've already got to deal with it on campus. In many ways, it reduces costs not only for the hauling and tipping that we talked about, but also the school's no longer buying fertilizer. They're right. not buying um, chemicals. Right. Uh, it's Very all, cool. It's all natural. So it's all, okay. Well, we're going to get to that in a second. But the next question I have is definitely for you because we've got to wrap this up in a couple of minutes. Um, Nick, this one is definitely for you. So 40% of our food goes into landfill. Have you yourself made any cal- calculations as to how much your composting system could mitigate the greenhouse gases associated with rotting food in landfills? Because I know it's very significant. Yeah, well, uh, yeah, actually, let's just make sure that uh, we have some of our figures correct. Of, of, of the entire municipal solid waste stream, about 14.5% of it is food. Uh-huh. Okay. okay. So that's about 36 million tons in, in 2011. 19 million tons uh, were landfilled, or about 8%. 
and the only 4% or 1.5 million tons were recovered for composting, and the remaining 15 million tons were incinerated. Now, both incinerating and landfill, as I mentioned, have some pretty serious environmental repercussions. It is generally accepted by the scientific community that composting will dramatically reduce um, the contribution of greenhouse gases associated with global climate change in a couple of different ways. The primary one, and again, why we focus on local, is the avoidance or complete elimination of any transportation emissions. Again, if we can if we can recover the food locally and, and move it in carts or something like that, or like a couple guys up in Massachusetts are doing with bicycles, et cetera, we do it that way. Then when you use the compost and you put it into the soil, the carbon that is in the compost now stays in the soil for centuries. It's right. called sequestering. Yes. The general sort of back-of-the-envelope calculations that I've done are that if you, if we were to recover and compost all of the discarded, uneaten food generated in this country in just one year, so tens of millions of tons, yes. using local technology so we can eliminate to the fullest extent possible transportation, the resultant reduction in carbon dioxide equivalent emissions, which is how we talk about greenhouse gas emissions, yes. to sort of standardize everything to carbon dioxide, would be roughly the same as if we were to remove millions of cars from the road. Cars, when I say cars, I mean getting 28 miles to the gallon and being driven 15,000 miles a year. And that's just to rot some food. Yeah. Now, when you combine that that's with the impressive. carbon that you're sequestering in the compost, it has an enormous potential to pull carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and sequester it in the soil. And then you add on top of that that the plants are going to grow much more robustly, therefore lay down much more biomass, sequestering even more carbon. Right. It, it, it believes, I believe, it's, it's a real game changer when we start talking about uh, global climate change mitigation. And just to underscore Nick's point, <clears throat> excuse me, there are organizations out there right now that are trying to position compost to be eligible for carbon credits. Right. Because of the amount that it sequesters. That sounds like a Natural Resources Defense Council kind of thing. <laughs> Hopefully. My favorite people, my best friends. Okay, one last question for Nick, um, and this one is the meanest one yet. Um, <laughs> so much of our food supply, especially meat, is tainted with chemicals. Um, and by that I mean the chemicals that are uh, used to promote growth, et cetera. So, for example, chickens are often raised uh, with using some form of an arsenic, um, which presents prevents several diseases um but when they when their waste is spread around uh which they use as fertilizer it is obviously tainted very seriously with what was organic arsenic and becomes inorganic this is just one example uh how do you mitigate for that within your composting system or is that simply not possible well, there's, there's two answers to that. The, the first sort of short answer is what we know about the microbial world would probably not fill a thimble. <laughs> there, there's just so much that we've yet to learn about it. Um, and so given a definitive answer is almost impossible. Fair enough. The, uh, and I'll tell you what, just a short story. I had a, a colleague who lived in Texas. And they were, the EPA had just established a new Superfund site down there for some land that was, the soil was contaminated with PCBs. Uh-huh. And he asked them if he could try a study on the site. And, you know, it had to go through several hurdles and clear several barriers, but was finally given permission because he said, what I want to do is I want to, I want to tail in some compost and then I want to spray compost tea on the soil. 
And so he did that. And a year later, when the EPA came back and wanted to begin remediating the site, he kind of got called in on the carpet and was asked, what, what did he do with the topsoil that was there? Because he wasn't given permission to remove it. And he said, I didn't. Why? Is there a problem? And bottom line is they weren't able to detect any PCBs in the area where he was treating it with compost and compost tea. Now, when I went through college and and all of my science courses, I was taught that there was nothing on Earth that could break down PCBs. That's a human-made chemical compound. Right. Nothing had evolved to sort of digest that, if you will. Well, apparently there is something out there. We just don't know what it is yet. We've never been introduced to it. We don't have a genus species name for it. But there's something out there in the microbial world. Now, it was either in the compost. It was in the soil. It was somewhere. You scared uh, me, I did a study for the EPA looking at the effect of blending uh, food-based compost into a decontaminated river sediment, mm-hmm. which, by the way, still had some arsenic in it. Yeah. We did, the, we did the pre-test, we did the post-test, and afterward we found that the amount of arsenic had actually decreased. Now, people would say, well, of course it did. You diluted, you know, you diluted the river sediment with compost. No, we controlled for that statistically. What we basically are saying is there's something going on. We can't explain it. We don't know the answer. But something caused the amount of arsenic in that decontaminated river for a sediment to decrease. So, you know, the, the, in our issue, again, we're processing food. A lot yeah. of times the food right. that comes over was on somebody's plate an hour or two earlier. Sure. So we have to presume that to it the extent safe. that's possible through our government regulations, the food is safe to ingest. Yes. Consequently, what's in the compost should be safe. Now, we all know that that's not necessarily true and is open to perception. Um, but we're, we can't make any claims about food making you know, something that we don't want in our food to disappear. We're... we're, we're it's, we don't we don't allege alchemy. Right, right. right. Well, I, I think it's a great system. I, I really wish you guys the best of success. Uh, we have to wrap this up here. So um, tell people where your website is, how they can learn more about Four Solutions, and maybe how they can you know suggest to their municipality or their building site or their institution that they might like to consider investing in their own Four Solution. Well, thank you, Katie. <clears throat> so certainly they can visit our website, Four Solutions, that's F-O-R, Solutions with an S at the end, LLC.com. So it's foursolutionsllc.com. They can certainly send me an email at efriedman, F-R-I-E-D-M-A-N, at foursolutionsllc.com, or nick at nsmithsebasto, that's S-M-I-T-H-S-E-B-A-S-T-O. Excuse me, too. Oh, that's too long a name. (laughs) At foursolutionsllc.com. Uh, but we certainly appreciate you having us on and uh, and talking about the importance of composting. Yeah, well, I, I wish you the best of success. Let's let's uh, make a date a year from now and see how many of these guys you've sold. Wonderful. <laughs> we look forward. And then to I want to be in the on the IPO. <laughs> Fair enough. Okay. Thanks so much for joining me in the studio today, and you too, Nick, on the phone. And thanks to my sponsor, Kane Winery, out in Napa, uh, and of course to my beloved Jack Insley. Happy New Year, everybody. See you next week. Thank you, Katie. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us with questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.
And the theme song for What Doesn't Kill You is I Get By by the Dead Stars. Again, thanks for listening. 